Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, kids. It's always a big deal when we get the maestro, Joseph Goldstein, on the show. He's one of the greatest living meditation teachers and a huge figure in my own life. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, both related to meditation and to life generally. We talk about how to strike a balance between trying too hard and trying too little in meditation, how to handle your doubts about whether you're meditating correctly, what the Buddhists really mean when they say, let it go, what Joseph means when he says, don't waste your suffering, and why he uses the word ridiculous so much to describe the way our minds work. This is the third installment in a series we've been running this month on the Eightfold Path. If you missed the first two episodes, don't worry. Joseph starts our conversation with a brief description and explanation of this pivotal Buddhist list. The list is basically a recipe for living a good life. It's often divided into three buckets, and we covered the first two buckets on the previous episodes. And in this one, after doing an overview, we cover the final bucket, which includes the last three entries on the list, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Again, if you're new to the Eightfold Path or to Buddhism, this conversation is structured to be friendly to beginners, so don't worry if you are having trouble with any of the lingo any of these special words that have come out of my mouth over the last few seconds, we're going to explain everything, and uh, I think you're going to like it. For anybody new to Joseph Goldstein, he is one of the most respected meditation teachers in the world, a huge force behind the rise of mindfulness in modern society, and he's got a sense of humor, as you will hear, on top of it all. In the 1970s, he co-founded the Insight Meditation Society, or IMS, alongside other great meditation teachers with familiar names, such as Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield. Since IMS was founded, thousands of people from around the world have gone there. It's in Barrie, Massachusetts, to do silent meditation retreats and to learn about Buddhism. It is where I personally go on retreat. Uh, I should also say that Joseph is also the author of several books, including Mindfulness, One Dharma, and The Experience of Insight. Just a quick preview of some of the other topics we hit in this chat, how the Eightfold Path encompasses both daily life and formal meditation, the simplest possible definition of mindfulness, how mindfulness can prevent unwholesome or unhealthy states of mind from arising, what to do when unwholesome states have already arisen, being mindful of seeing, which is an often overlooked, sorry, that's a little cute, but an often overlooked area of practice, a simple explanation of the tricky Buddhist concept of not-self, or the self being an illusion. We also talk about the Buddhist concept of wisdom and about the importance of having a sense of humor about your own mind, and the relief that I personally get from knowing that even Joseph sometimes compares himself to other meditators. One quick note, we initially conducted this conversation live via Zoom as part of a benefit in support of an organization called the New York Insight Meditation Center, which is an offshoot of IMS. And we'll put a link to both NYI and IMS in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about either of these organizations or donate. I'm a huge supporter of both. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about 
my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Joseph Goldstein, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Maybe you should see how it goes before you release it on your podcast. <laughs> welcome, everyone. It's really good to be with you all. So we're going to talk about the Eightfold Path, specifically the final three bullet points on the Eightfold Path. But let's just start with the bigger picture. For people who are new, or even for those of us who've been around for a minute and may have faulty memories, what could you say as a context setter about the Eightfold Path in its entirety? Well, one of the, I think, interesting and important aspects of the Eightfold Path as a teaching is that it really encompasses both the activities and our experiences in our daily life, as well as informal meditation. So I think that's really important to emphasize because sometimes people think that the practice is only about the formal meditation. And yet, right at the center of the Eightfold Path are things like right speech, you know, and right livelihood, and right action. And so I think that enlarges our sense of what our Dharma practice is about when we understand the 
eight steps of it in their entirety. And of course, the first two steps have to do with the cultivation of certain wholesome mind states like metta and compassion and renunciation. And also the very first step on the path is a wisdom factor. And one of the questions that I really like to encourage people to reflect on, both in their formal practice and in you know, their practice in the world, is what am I learning from being aware? <laughs> We're practicing being aware, but that's not an end in itself. The end is really wisdom, you know, a liberating wisdom. And so just holding that question, well, what am I learning as I'm paying attention? And really, the entirety of the Eightfold Path supports that inquiry. In this conversation, we're going to focus on the final three aspects of the Eightfold Path, which are effort, mindfulness, and concentration. These are often described as the sort of on-the-cushion aspects of the Eightfold Path. Am I right about that? They are often described like that, but of course, each one of even these three steps can be applied to our activities in the world. So we don't want to stop being mindful or stop arousing energy once we're off the cushion. So even though they're really highlighting the meditative practice per se, the implication is then that we carry that development into how we're living. And I think that's really important. Agreed. So let's take the first of these final three and start there. It's effort or right effort. What did the Buddha mean by this idea of effort? Yes. Yeah, so first to start even with that translation, there are two words in Pali which describe this. And the one that captures what I think is the most useful understanding of it is the Pali word virya, which is more often translated as energy. So virya, I, I like that quality of energy because sometimes in English, the word effort can just often morph into efforting. Right. And so it can easily get out of balance. And of course, one of the practices of right effort or virya energy is in finding the balance, you know, so that it's not too much where we get all tense or it's too loose where we simply space out. As most of you probably know, the Buddha gave a very apt simile for this. He said it's like tuning the strings of a lute. You know, we might say guitar in these days. You know, if they're too tight, it doesn't sound right. If it's too loose, it doesn't sound right. And so this is the quality of right effort or right energy really has to do with tuning it within ourselves. And this is a ongoing practice. You know, it's not that we find it and then we have it. It's a continual state of monitoring the quality of our effort or our energy. So specifically, it refers to the letting go of unskillful states and the cultivation of skillful ones. As again, most of you are familiar with this verse from the Dhammapada where it says, avoid what is unskillful, do what is good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. <laughs> That's really a beautiful summary. In three lines, we get all the teachings of the Buddha. Of course, it's a little challenging to actually put it into practice. I would imagine that as a meditation teacher, some significant percentage of the questions you get from students falls into this bucket of 
effort. I mean, I just interpolating back to all the many desperate questions I've asked you in the middle of <laughs> retreats about where it's obvious that the problem is that I'm just trying too hard. Yes. So again, what we have to learn is how to pay attention to whether the strings of our inner being are in tune. That is, are they too tight? Are they too loose? And I think sometimes as instructions are given in meditation, it may be that it's not so often that we make that a specific instruction to pay attention to the quality of effort. And it's more in response as people come in and report their experience. And so then maybe the teacher will give feedback. But I think it's really helpful for each one of us to integrate this part of the practice so we monitor ourselves, you know, and so we're not having to wait, you know, for the next meditation interview or anything like that. We're monitoring. Am I getting too tight? Okay, so then we relax a bit. Am I spacing out? Okay, can I be more mindful? Of course, having guidance from a teacher can be very helpful, but I think an important part of the practice, especially for those you know, have been practicing a while, who really have some experience, I think we can in part become our own teachers if we're learning how to monitor, especially this quality of effort, because it's so easy for it to get out of balance. Yeah, I've been trying to put you out of business for a while. Good. It hasn't, hasn't worked. <laughs> Just thinking about a thing that you've said to me so many times, often in the context of a meditation retreat, when I'm complaining, you've said this one word to me, surrender. Uh -huh. And again, you know, it's interesting how different words can strike different ones of us, you know, in different ways. And so for many people, that word really just allows one to let go a bit, you know, and to relax. Another word might be allow. Often in meditation circles, a lot of the teachings about letting go. But I found that perhaps a better phrase is let it be instead of let it go. Because to let it go implies that there's something we have to do, whereas let it be already acknowledges the truth of impermanence. You know, so if we're really being mindful and we let things be, in and of themselves, they will arise and pass away if we're not interfering. So any one of these phrases, you know, and each person needs to find the words, the vocabulary that resonates with them. But it could be surrender, it could be allow, it could be let it be, and it's really helpful. So under the rubric of effort, which is, as we've noted, part of the Eightfold Path, there's at least one other list embedded in the list I'm about to reference, <laughs> which is amazing. Uh, but there is this list of the four great endeavors that you often reference when discussing right effort. So let's see if we can get through a few of these great endeavors. The first is preventing the arising of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. What does that mean in plain English? <laughs> it means that once we have some sense of the unskillful states that arise within all of us from time to time, we can learn to really investigate and pay attention, well, what are the circumstances in which those unwholesome states arose? First, we might see, well, what sense thought do they arise most predominantly from? You know, is it from what we're seeing? And then we either get angry or desire, you know, filled with desire or greed. Is it what we hear? Is it the sensations in the body? Is it our thoughts? 
So the first would be to see, okay, what's the field where the unwholesome states arise predominantly? And it's probably some combination of all of them. And then once we have seen that or learned that, we can pay a special attention to that field. So I'll, I'll just give you an example, which this had an amazing impact on my practice and could be really helpful, I think, for folks to practice with. You know, one of the very common unwholesome states of mind is judging. You know, we're judging ourselves a lot, but also judging other people. And this came so clear to me. I was on retreat at IMS, and I just noticed every time I was in the dining room for meals, I would have a judgment about every single person, about what they were wearing, about how they were moving, about how much food they took. It was totally ridiculous. You know, but that's what the mind was doing. Just this running commentary of judging. So at a certain point, I saw that and saw how ridiculous that was. I realized, well, what's the cause of all these judgments to arise? And I saw that they arose because I was not mindful of seeing. You know, as I would walk into the dining room, all those judgments came from what was being seen. So as soon as I recognized that, Every time I walked into the dining room, I would just be noting seeing the whole time. Seeing, getting online for food, seeing, going to the table, seeing, sitting down at the table, seeing. It was amazing. All that time that I was mindful of seeing, which was helped by the noting, there were no judgments at all. They all disappeared. And it was such a simple understanding of how mindfulness can prevent unwholesome states from arising. But it came retroactively. <laughs> I had to see first, oh, that's where they do arise. And then investigating, well, why are they arising in this arena? And then taking the appropriate action, namely being mindful in this case of seeing. I was just amazed at how simple it was once I saw it. Just one further thing, not only in the IMS dining room, but for people who have, you know, vision, their vision is not impaired in some way, seeing in some way, I think, is the predominant sense field of our lives. We're just moving about in the world of what is being seen. And yet, for the most part, I think we're not mindful that we're seeing. And so, as we go through our lives through the day, it's one of the reasons our mind is continually caught up in reactivity. It's usually reactive to something we're seeing. Yeah, sometimes hearing, but seeing is a big one. And it's more difficult to be mindful of seeing than hearing because it doesn't have the same tangible impact. You know, it comes in very softly. So we're not even aware that seeing is going on, even though we're immersed in it. So this is just an example of how powerful mindfulness can be in the ordinary circumstances of our lives. This is not exactly on point, but there was something you said at the beginning of that last answer that I was just reminded of how this is a thing I've heard you say many times, and I find it very helpful. It's the word ridiculous that <laughs> you repeatedly describe your thoughts and my thoughts as ridiculous. And I really find that it's a little, it could be humbling at first, but it's very helpful. Yeah. And that points to actually a bigger attitude of mind that's really helpful, which is having a sense of humor about our own minds. 
you know, actually one yogi came into an interview once and they had a great comment. They were reporting on what they were learning about their minds. And they said, the mind has no pride. <laughs> and I loved it because I think we all know that all of these thoughts come and, you know, all of this reactivity and it's all just the habitual conditioning of our minds. So it's really helpful to see the impersonality of it all and to see it with a sense of humor, because that itself is a very effective way of not being so caught by it. You know, we just smile at ourselves. A big help in practice. Absolutely. So let's get to the second great endeavor and heads up that this is where we get into a list within a list. But the second great endeavor is to abandon the unwholesome states which have already arisen. Yes. So unpack that and then we'll get into the list. So this is really in some way a major part of our meditation practice and our practice in the world. Once we recognize that an unwholesome state has arisen, what do we do? How do we abandon the unwholesome states that are there? And there's a whole range of ways of abandoning the unwholesome, abandoning the unskillful. So the first one is mindfulness. You know, we're mindful and it's there. And depending on the strength of our mindfulness and the strength of the particular defilement in the mind, sometimes just that, just by being mind, oh, look at that, and it's gone. And so that's an easy release. Sometimes, though, we need to strengthen the mindfulness. You know, there's a state that I've talked about a lot. I call, I call it a meditative disease, which is the state of more or less mindfulness, where we're kind of there. You know, we're not totally spaced out, but we're not really there. So I'll just give one example of this. One point I was on retreat in Nepal with Saito Pandita, and the conditions were really terrible. There were four or five of us, you know, living in this one room, a cement floor. We just had our little pads. It was right next to the latrine. The food wasn't good. It was just, you know, it wasn't IMS. <laughs> <laughs> so one time I went in for my interview with Saito Pandita, and I was saying, you know, my mind was just in complaining mode about all the conditions. And he said, well, be more mindful. <laughs> and my first reaction in my mind, I didn't say this, but what I thought was, thanks a lot. <laughs> you know, here, these conditions are really terrible. And he's just saying, be more mindful. <laughs> However, I left the interview. I started walking meditation. I thought, well, here's this great teacher. This is what he said to do. So in fact, I started being more mindful in the walking, you know, really feeling the sensations of the movement very precisely and very carefully. Lo and behold, as soon as the mind dropped into that level of mindfulness, all the complaining, all the unwholesome, the aversion, it was gone because my mind was fully occupied in being mindful with the steps. That's one of the first uh, strategies. Another strategy, which I have used a lot, and it's one of the things that keeps me most interested in the practice, and that, that is when there's some kind of suffering in the mind. And the suffering is always coming because there's some unwholesome state going on. Whenever there's some 
discomfort in my mind. You know, something is not flowing easily for whatever reason. It really piques my interest. I use that situation of an unwholesome mind state and the attendant suffering. It's almost like a mindfulness bell to investigate. Okay, what's going on in my mind that's causing this suffering? There's a phrase that I use, and people might misinterpret this, so I say it with a little bit of caution. But the phrase that I like using is, don't waste your suffering. And by that, I mean, don't drown in it, you know, and don't just get so caught up and lost and maybe with self-judgment or self-pity or whatever it is. Don't waste it on that. The suffering is really a wake-up call to investigate. And it's very interesting. When we start to look at our minds, we can see very directly the causes of the suffering. So right there, we have the first two noble truths. You know, there's the truth of suffering, which we're experiencing. And then if we really investigate it, rather than simply just enduring it, so then we're experiencing the second noble truth, understanding the cause of suffering. So I'll just give one example of this. And this really has also changed my practice a lot. It's been really effective. So as most of you probably know, one of the lists that Dan refers to, the list of all the defilements in the mind. They're basically, the Buddha highlighted 10 different defilements or unwholesome states, which are uprooted at different stages of enlightenment. Well, one of the last defilements to be uprooted is something called mana in Pali, M-A-N-A. And it's usually translated as conceit. But it's not conceit in the usual meaning that we have in English. It's any kind of comparing. And as most of you know, who you know, have been meditating a while, you know, we all know how common this comparing mind is. You know, we meet somebody and maybe we're comparing, I don't know, just different attributes or whatever. But one particular example I had, I was doing a self-retreat, and at the same time, Bhikkhu Analio, who many of you might know of, he was doing a retreat down at the study center, just down the road, at the same time. So I was on retreat in my house, and I think I spent an hour or two just frittering away some time. And then I thought of Analio, who's super disciplined, you know, and, and I just knew he was not frittering away his time. So then I started getting down on myself a little bit. You know, you know, what kind of yogi am I? <laughs> just that whole pattern. But then quite quickly, I noticed, oh, that's just mana. That's just this comparing mind. As soon as I recognized it, oh, that's just mana. Because in the being mindful of it, it was the remembering that that mana or comparing or conceit in that way is itself impersonal. The mana is not I, it's not self, it's just a conditioned, a deeply conditioned pattern. As I said, it's not uprooted till final full enlightenment. So becoming mindful and seeing it as impersonal in the moment of recognition was all gone. My mood lifted and I got back to being a little more diligent yogi. <laughs> you know? So again, all of this has to do with investigating. You know, when there's suffering, when there's something unwholesome, Okay, how can I unhook? And this is really an interesting part of the practice. I love hearing that 
even you compare yourself to other meditators at times. It's a relief. <laughs> it's all non-self, fortunately. Right. right. <laughs> and I believe the original Pali word for non-self was ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there are five other options that you list for support in this second great endeavor of abandoning unwholesome states, which have already arisen. I don't know that we're going to have time to do all of them because we've got a lot of other ground to cover, but let me list them and then you can pick which one, if any, that you would like to dwell further on. The first is metta or cultivating the opposite of many unwholesome states, which is loving kindness or friendliness or warmth. The second, and these are more Pali words here, hiri and Otapa, which I can't translate, but maybe you will. The third is to find something else to focus on. The fourth is to look directly at the unwholesome states. And the fifth is to suppress. So the, the general principle of the first one is with unwholesome states, if the investigation aspect, which I just talked about, doesn't quite get it or doesn't release it, finding the antidote so the antidote, for example, to ill will or anger or fear is metta, is loving kindness. The antidote to envy is mudita, sympathetic joy. So just a little story there, which will illustrate how effective some of these tools can be. One of the times when I was going to Burma to practice for a few months, so my friend and colleague Steve Armstrong was a monk there and had been a monk for quite a few years. So I get to the monastery, you know, from the busyness of my life, trying to settle in. And Steve was just there, you know, having spent the last few years in intensive practice, and he was just like floating off the ground. You could just see kind of the lightness and the stillness. And my first reaction was a little bit of mana, you know, comparing and, oh, look, he's doing so great. And I was, you know, I'm struggling in whatever way I was. But again, I saw it pretty quickly. And then I started doing the mudita practice, you know, which, as most of you know, it's translated often as empathetic joy or sympathetic joy. And the phrase in English would be, may your happiness increase. May your well-being increase. May it never leave you. And again, it's some of these things are so simple. Within a few minutes of starting to do the mudita and really feeling it, I, I was really wishing that for him. All of that comparing completely fell away. Yeah, and I was just there in this very wholesome state of appreciating his good fortune, having had the opportunity to practice so much. So this is an example of using the antidote. Or if we're really feeling greed, the antidote is renunciation. And it doesn't have to be some super big renunciation, just, you know, moments of there's a desire to do something that maybe is not that important or necessary or whatever. And just for the practice of it, say, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to let it go. And again, renunciation, I would not say that's the strongest of my paramis. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So it's something that I really am interested in and play with. Just a simple example. You know, I may, especially when I'm on retreat, maybe doing walking meditation and the thought comes, oh, you know, a cup of tea would be nice. And then no, no. And then the thought may come again and again and again and again. But at those times when I can really, I don't need this, I don't need to do it. 
even though it's not that there would be anything wrong in having the cup of tea. It's just a very simple thing, but it's a chance to practice the move of renunciation. You know, when we have some desire, even a very small one like that, and we have a wise, no, you know, I don't need this. For myself, I feel that, first, I feel it is a great victory <laughs> over my mind. But also, more important than that, it's energizing, you know, because it's like the conservation of energy. Instead of our energy going out, you know, to the fulfillment of all our desires, say, no, I don't need to do that. It feels so strengthening. So again, this is just an, a way of applying an antidote and simple things. You know, one doesn't have to be a great meditator or have practiced for 20 years to do these things. They're really simple. Coming up, Joseph Goldstein talks about the simplest definition of mindfulness, what Joseph calls black lab consciousness, which is a funny term. I'll let him unpack that. And how to handle all of those thoughts you might have about whether you're meditating correctly. It's spring and that means it's graduation season and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. And I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier.
Just to reset for everybody, we're talking about the final three entries on the Eightfold Path, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. We've been talking about right effort, and within right effort, we've been talking about these four great endeavors. I am going to move us on to uh, right mindfulness, but to say Joseph has given Dharma talks on these four great endeavors. So if you want to hear about the two that we haven't covered, we will put a link for podcast listeners in the show notes. All right, so let's talk about the seventh entry on the Eightfold Path, right mindfulness. This is a word a lot of people use a lot in our culture these days. There have been books on mindful lawyering, mindful <laughs> sex, mindful parenting, whatever. <laughs> Not even kidding. There have been actual books on all of these, sometimes several. So what in its simplest form is the definition of mindfulness? Okay, so <laughs> I'd just like to give a little mini wrap on what mindfulness is and what it isn't. Because sometimes by seeing what it isn't, it kind of clarifies what it is. So very often people will, you know, when you ask somebody, well, what is mindfulness? A very common response would be, well, it's living in the present. It's being in the present moment. You know, not lost in the past, not lost in the future. And that is a foundational aspect of mindfulness but it's necessary, but not sufficient, right? There are many more aspects that are needed to really understand mindfulness because that living in the present, that quality <laughs> is what I have called black lab consciousness. <laughs> you know, or it could be <laughs> any of your favorite breeds of dogs, but black labs, they're really fun. You know, they're joyful, they're playful, and they seem to be in the present. You know, it doesn't look like they're lost in past or lost in future. They're just in the present. But as far as I can tell, they just don't seem to be very mindful. <laughs> <laughs> they're just bounding along on their instincts and their you know desires, whatever. So they're present, but not yet mindful. So something else is needed. And that is, you might call it a metacognition. So we're aware of what's in the moment. And it's, it's like there's that quality of knowing we're aware. So th that brings in a, a really important dimension. So there's a very experiential feeling of being in the present, being aware of what is there, what our experience is. But that's still not enough. And there's an important distinction here that really clarifies the difference between these states that might look like mindfulness, but are not. And the distinction is between recognition and mindfulness. Because very often we think that if we recognize what's present, oh, there's anger, or there's greed, or there's love, or there's compassion. We often feel that in the recognition, that means we're being mindful. Now the recognition, like being in the present moment, is necessary but recognition by itself is not mindfulness because we could be recognizing what's present. For example, suppose there's aversion or anger in the mind. We might recognize that, but be being aware of it through a filter of not liking it, of wanting it to go away, of judging it. And so the filter itself becomes another unwholesome mind state. So mindfulness is a very special kind of recognition. We're recognizing what's there, 
We're being mindful of it, but without greed, without aversion, without delusion, right? And so we're seeing it without that filter of an unwholesome mind state. And as many of you know, I've told this story many times. For many years, I was working, this goes back quite a way in my practice, but fear was a very predominant emotion. And I had been noting it and aware of it and recognizing it, thinking I was being mindful, but I wasn't, because I was always noting it, wanting it to go away. And it was only when I finally came to a place of acceptance of it, without aversion, without wanting it to go away, of fear, fear is like this, right? It was in that moment of acceptance that I could begin to see the impermanence of it and the whole mass of fear that I had been struggling with, it really just dissolved in that moment of acceptance. Not meaning that it never came back, but my relationship to it had changed completely. You know, and so it's really seeing that we want to recognize what's there, but then look at how we're relating to what we recognize. So that's when we're really beginning to get into what mindfulness means. Right? It's being in the present, recognizing what's present, being aware of it, free of greed, free of aversion to it, free of delusion. So here we're getting a really quite refined understanding of mindfulness. And that's why it's such a powerful mind state to develop and why the Buddha gave so much emphasis to it. I remember having a conversation with my Aunt Emily back in 2000, must have been 2009, when I was first getting interested in meditation. And I can't remember what I had said to her about why I was interested. And I remember her saying something like, yeah, well, I know I'm angry when I'm angry. <laughs> so what good does that do me? And everything you've just said sort of answers the question better than I could have back then, which is, yes, it's knowing you're angry without being caught up in the anger that allows you not to be owned by the anger. Exactly. Is Aunt Emily still alive? She is. Go back. <laughs> Give her this little rap. <laughs> Recognition and mindfulness is not exactly the same. <laughs> I'll corner her, give her my own little Dharma talk. I'm sure she'll be delighted. So I'm imagining that some people are having the following question, which you have answered in part, but I just want to put it to you in a very pointed way. Because I know from firsthand experience, it's very easy to get in your head while you're meditating with the following question, which is, am I doing it right? And after having listened to you talk in a fine-grained way about what mindfulness is and isn't, I imagine through my not divine ear, but some other divine power, that people are wondering, how do I know in any given moment whether I'm actually being mindful? Mm -hmm. So one of the really fine meditation teachers, Burmese, you know, who many people have connected with in recent years, Saida Utejaniya, he has a really simple way of addressing that question. So he suggests just periodically, for example, in a sitting, but it could be any time, but take sitting as an example. He suggests, you know, intermittently throughout the sitting, just asking the question, what's the attitude in my mind? And that's really pointing us, how am I relating to whatever's there? And what's very interesting is very often, simply by asking the question, it settles us back into a true mindfulness. So again, just another example from my own practice. 
one time I was sitting and just feeling my breath. It was totally ordinary sitting, you know, with the breath. And then I remembered this suggestion of Saito Tejaniya. So I'm just feeling the breath. And I asked the question in my mind, well, what's the attitude? And I didn't really think there was much of any attitude. It was just, you know, simple being with the in and out breath. But I asked the question, what's the attitude? And it was amazing. Just by asking the question, I could feel my mind settle back from a wanting that I didn't even know was there. Right. And they're very subtle. It was it was more like an energetic leaning into the next moment. You know, so we were in this breath in order to get to the out breath. Or maybe there was a subtle wanting of concentration. There was something that was extra. And again, it was just by asking the question of I didn't even need to be looking for an answer to oh, what's the attitude? And I felt the whole mind relax back in a more profound way, you know. So that's that's one way. Another very useful suggestion he had, which I think you've used this then in your practice, when we're caught up in a lot of thoughts, yeah, and we may be thinking we're being mindful of them, that, you know, we're recognizing that they're there, but in some way caught up in them. One of the other questions he suggested is asking, is this useful? Is this thought useful? And as I'm sure most of the people listening in this evening will recognize, most of our thoughts are not that useful. <laughs> so just asking the question, again, allows the mind to settle back into a more mindful state so we're not so caught up in the thought. So these are just some very simple ways. Lastly, I would say, keeping all of these suggestions in mind and just the basic understanding of what mindfulness means, you know, that is a being with things, but without the wanting and without the aversion, without the identification. So if we just have that in mind, and maybe some of these specific suggestions, I wouldn't worry too much about, am I doing it right? Because that itself could just become the cause of a lot of judgment and a lot of self-judgment. And so a note that I used a lot, this was much earlier in my practice, in seeing a lot of those kinds of thoughts, the am I doing it right thoughts, I started calling them practice assessment tapes. <laughs> Pat, <laughs> you know, practice assessment tape. And as soon as I could just see it and name it as that, again, the becoming mindful of that thought pattern help the mind release from it. And I said, oh yeah, that's just a passing thought. So that question is a common one that comes up. Am I doing it right? And we really do want to see it and recognize it. And in one way or another, let go of it. You used a word a few paragraphs ago that I'm going to bring up again. You used the word concentration, which is the eighth entry on the Eightfold Path. It's not the most attractive word, concentration. It, you know, for me, that summons mental images of your furrowed brow or the thinker. So what does concentration mean in a Buddhist context? Okay, so I want to respond to that on two levels. First, I agree with you that the word in English, it just has a lot of baggage with it because the connotations of the English word concentration 
can call up these images of that furrowed brow, you know, super focused on something, which is not that helpful. And it's actually a hindrance to the real meaning of concentration. There are two words in Pali. The more general word is samadhi for concentration or ekagata, which is specifically one-pointedness. So both of those you know, refer to this. A key component of samadhi is relaxation, right? And that's a hard lesson to learn. And I'm, it's an ongoing practice for myself as well as many students that, that are practicing because there is a lot of emphasis on developing samadhi. And yet the very wanting is a hindrance to it. You know, we get too caught up in a grasping at it and that is a hindrance to developing it. So it's kind of a subtle aspect in terms of watching our own minds. So I want to emphasize that relaxation is really a key point. The word that I find more helpful for myself rather than concentration is steadiness. Because steadiness doesn't have that connotation of over-effort, you know, or hypervigilance. Steadiness, at least in my mind, it almost suggests a kind of relaxation. Okay, can I just settle back and be steady in the feeling of each breath or step or whatever the object is? So that's a word that I like to use a lot. But a word that I have found more helpful in leading the mind to a place of steadiness and relaxation, rather than the effort to concentrate, I started using the phrase or having the intention to be steady. You know, and just that intentionality for me, it's a softer energy than concentrate. You know, so this intentionality to be steady. And we can apply that, you know, in something as simple as a breath or taking a step at the beginning of the breath. It's just like a moment's remembering. Oh yeah, intention. Like have the intention to be steady for the duration of just this in-breath and then steady for the duration of the out-breath. So it's very soft, it's very simple, but that's actually what builds the one-pointedness, the steadiness. These are some nuances of working with right concentration and finding the language in all of these teachings, unless you happen to be a Pali scholar, we're receiving them all and hearing them all in translation. And the translation often, you know, in English words can have different connotations than are in the Pali. So we need to find the language that actually supports the meaning of what the Pali is referring to. And as I say, steadiness and intentionality for me has worked well. So just one more thing to say in terms of the basic understanding of this is that there are two kinds, say concentration or steadiness or samadhi. One is when we're staying steady on a fixed object, like one object, and it could be anything. It could be the breath, it could be movement, it could be a light, a sound, and we're just staying steady on it. And the other kind of concentration and steadiness is momentary, where we're one-pointed on changing objects. You know, and this is the kind of concentration that develops in Vipassana.
you know, where we're open to the changing objects, but the mind is steady moment after moment. And both of these develop stronger samadhi, you know, and they have different flavors, but the quality of the samadhi is that steadiness of mind, whether it's on a fixed object or on changing objects. How do we develop this concentration or steadiness of either flavor? Well, so in, in the way we traditionally teach Vipassana, we actually combine these two because in the beginning of the practice, there is a lot of emphasis on using a primary object, you know, and it could very often it's the breath, you know, whether it's the rising falling or the in and out, the breath of the nostrils. So that's really a kind of fixed object concentration development. And by giving emphasis to the primary object, we really are strengthening this quality of steadiness. But in the way we teach Vipassana, as we learned it in Asia, it's not exclusively that. So in our Vipassana practice, we're really starting with an emphasis on that single object concentration, but it also includes becoming mindful and one-pointed on other objects that may arise and become predominant. And so, as we all know, you know, we can be working with the rise full or in and out and maybe be with it for quite a while. And then sounds become predominant. So we note hearing or a thought thinking or another sensation in the body. So the practice actually is combining the two. At a certain point, when the steadiness has reached a certain level of maturity and strength, there are times when the practice becomes totally choiceless, where we're not using the primary object. So then it's all the momentary concentration. But before that, we really are intermingling these two ways of practice. So just to restate that a little bit in case anybody hasn't heard the term choiceless before in this context, once you've got enough steadiness of mindfulness often developed through paying attention to the breath or you've chosen some primary object like the breath, you may ultimately notice that you can drop your attention to one primary thing like the breath and whatever happens, you're steady with whatever's coming up. And in that way, it's choiceless. You're not picking or choosing. It's just whatever comes up in the mind, birdsong, pain in your knee, whatever it is, you can just be with it in a non-judgmental, maybe even slightly warm, accepting way. But let me get back to something you talked about earlier, which is the catch-22 of practice, or one of the principal catch-22s of meditation practice, which is, I often described it as a video game where you can't move forward if you want to move forward. So how do you go about developing greater steadiness without wanting to develop <laughs> greater steadiness? Right. So here again, I think it's really a linguistic problem because we use the word wanting in English in a wide variety of ways. So the wanting that is not helpful is the wanting of a clinging or grasping or expectation. That's what gets in the way. But there is a wanting, we could call a more wholesome wanting, and the term or the word I like to use for that is aspiration. So we can have the aspiration to develop more steadiness, right? And so it sets the direction 
without an aspiration, we may just be all over the place because we don't even know what direction we want to be going in. Right? So we have an aspiration. You know, let me develop more steadiness of mind. That's the aspiration. It sets the direction. But then we let go of it. We don't have to continually be having the aspiration in mind. Once we've set the direction, then we just engage in the practice of being steady on this breath, steady on this breath, steady on this breath, and trusting. And here's where trust or faith, you know, in the Buddhist terminology, is really helpful. It's trusting that if we're heading in the right direction and we know what to do, you know, taking step by step or breath by breath, we will arrive at where we want to go. And so it's really trusting that we don't have to be, I might say, hypervigilant about it or have expectations. Expectation in practice is a huge hindrance. You know, it's, it's a setup for suffering because our expectations are almost never fulfilled. <laughs> at least when we want them to be, <laughs> you know. And so just letting go of all that. So one of the things that strengthens the aspiration to develop this steadiness is something the Buddha said, which is very powerful and I think can be lost very often, especially in these days, you know, mindfulness has gotten so popular that sometimes some crucial aspects can be left out. Well, the Buddha made a very strong statement. He said that there can be no wisdom without concentration, without this steadiness of mind. So he clearly is placing a lot of importance on this, of developing that steadiness so that we can see clearly. And just one other really important part here, concentration is not the goal, it's not the end, right? We want to develop it in the service of wisdom. And it's a necessary component of developing wisdom. So for me, understanding that and experiencing it to some extent, it inspires me actually, you know, to always be working, okay, how can I strengthen the steadiness of mind, understanding how that's what leads to greater wisdom, to deeper seeing. And that's why it's such an important part of the path. Coming up, Joseph talks about the Buddhist concept of wisdom. That word gets used a lot in Buddhist circles. What does it actually mean? A simple explanation of the tricky Buddhist concept of selflessness or not self. And we talk about how to bring the Eightfold Path into your daily life. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation 
and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. You've invoked this word wisdom a bunch throughout the conversation. I imagine there are some people who hear the word wisdom and then, you know, maybe you get an image of Dumbledore or <laughs> some, you know, Sistine Chapel image of white-haired, long-bearded God or whatever it is. What do you mean specifically by wisdom? Yeah, so again, within the Buddhist framework, you know, I love the teachings because the Buddha was just so clear about everything. <laughs> so there's a very simple response to that. And there could be many ways of describing, okay, what is the wisdom about? So one very obvious one is the wisdom of understanding the Four Noble Truths, of suffering and the cause and the end and the path leading to it. But more specifically, even in meditation, and this we really can experience very directly for ourselves, you know, and we do as our practice goes on, is the wisdom or the insight into the changing nature of things, of impermanence. Wisdom into the unsatisfying nature or unreliable nature of things because they're changing. You know, so it doesn't mean that things are necessarily always painful or suffering in that sense, but they're ultimately unsatisfying because they don't last. You know, so even if things are enjoyable, and we, we have many beautiful, enjoyable experiences, but they're not the final refuge because of the impermanence. And of course, the most challenging aspect of wisdom, because it's the most counterintuitive, is the wisdom into the selfless nature of phenomena, that there's no self behind experience to whom it's happening, that self is simply a designation for the flow of changing experience. It's not something in and of itself that sits behind experience to whom it's all happening. So this is the wisdom of understanding anatta, of selflessness. You know, and we all touch on these three aspects of impermanence, the un unsatisfactoriness, the selflessness. You know, at different times in our practice, we really do get glimpses of each one of them. Just as you brought up selflessness or not self, we solicited questions from the New York Insight uh, community. And one of the questions was, can you offer a simple explanation of not self? You said a few words there, but it might be worth saying a few more if you're up for it. Yes. Yeah, so just to reiterate briefly what I just said, it's to understand that the word self is a designation for the flow of our mind-body process. So it's a designation for a flow of impermanent phenomena. It's not that it has some substantial reality independent of the flow of changing phenomena. So that's what I meant. It's not that it refers to the someone behind experience to whom it's happening. Rather, it's understanding that what we're calling self is the flow of changing phenomena. So that's one way of understanding. To see itself as a word is simply a designation for that flow. Okay, that's one way. One of the examples which I've been using a lot is that of a rainbow. 
you know, look up at the sky after rain, the sun comes out, rainbow, beautiful. We all enjoy the rainbow. But is the rainbow something in and of itself? No, it's an appearance as there's light and sun and moisture and whatever the conditions are that create the rainbow. That's actually what's there. Conditions come together and rainbow appears. Conditions change, rainbow disappears. So the rainbow is simply an appearance arising out of certain conditions, changing conditions coming together. It's not a self-existing phenomenon independent of those conditions. So self is like a rainbow. You know, there is on a conventional level, we see the rainbow, we enjoy it. We relate to one another as separate selves. So on the conventional level, well, that's fine. You know, and we use that kind of language, but it's to understand that it's a conventional designation for a certain pattern emerging of this mind-body process. You know, it's the constellation of thoughts and feelings and sensations and appearance, all of that gives rise to the notion of a self. And we can, as I say, on a conventional level, we use the word no problem, but it doesn't point to anything substantial behind it. There's no rainbow lurking behind the moisture and the sunlight and waiting, <laughs> waiting to show itself. It simply arises out of the conditions. I hope that's somewhat helpful. <laughs> it is. And just to put a fine or point on it, once you develop some steadiness, then you can develop the insight into the lack of some core nugget of rainbow hiding behind the rainbow or some <laughs> core nugget of Joseph hiding behind your eyes. That actually, it's not like learning integers in high school and it has no real world application. The real world application here of understanding selflessness is that then when anger comes along, you don't have to think of it as my anger and yes. then get owned by it so wholly. Perfect, Dan. Yes. I'm always going for the gold yeah. star. <laughs> you got it. No, that's it exactly. There's an hour Dharma talk about to emerge. <laughs> but then I'll just put it out. This, this is an a point that interests me. We're not going to have time to go into it in detail. But I found there's something very interesting about the insight into selflessness. And another word for that is ungovernableness, that things are just following their own laws. That the insight into anatta, it helps us understand dukkha, it helps us understand suffering, as well as being a doorway to liberation. So it's almost like it has two different implications. And I love that. So just as a quick little summary of that, one of the meanings of dukkha, or one of the causes, one might say, of things being dukkha, unsatisfying, you know, and sometimes suffering, is that conditions are ungovernable. So, for example, you know, we might have the wish, may my body never get sick. But that's not going to do anything. You know, as the Buddha said, what has the nature to grow old will grow old. What has the nature to grow ill will become ill. Die will die. And we are not exempt. And so it's that ungovernableness 
of things, that things are following their own laws, not necessarily our wishes or will, that really gives an understanding of why the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. You know, we would all like to be free of illness or like to be free of pain or difficult circumstances, but they're not always in our control. So that's the meaning of anatta, which points in the direction of dukkha. The other meaning of anatta, which points in the direction of liberation, is that because it's not self, if we are not identifying with any of these phenomena, then we don't suffer. Even with painful things, you know, or unpleasant things, if we're not identified with the experience, if we're not taking it to be self, then it's just part of the passing show, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. And so in that sense, the insight into selflessness is tremendously liberating. And I just find that interesting that, you know, the anatta has two sides to it. This has been a great romp through the final three entries into the Eightfold Path. Before I wrap things up, is there something that you wanted to say about either the final three parts of the Eightfold Path or the Eightfold Path generally, or, you know, my stellar record as a meditator, anything you wanted to talk about that I haven't given you a chance to talk about? Yes, let's talk about your stellar record as a meditator. <laughs> Dan is a great meditator. <laughs> I think the most important thing, and of course the Buddha said this over and over again, it's obviously not enough to simply know what the eight steps are. <laughs> it's a path to walk. You know, these are things to put into practice. And it might be interesting for folks who are interested to maybe undertake a particular kind of development of practice where you really investigate and do some study of each of the steps of the Eightfold Path. And maybe, you know, could be an eight-month project. And for a month at a time, really just highlight the practice of each of the steps. And there, there are so many places where you can begin the investigation. In my book, Mindfulness, there's many chapters on the Eightfold Path. And so that could be one place to explore. Bhikkhu Bodhi has written a wonderful book called The Noble Eightfold Path. So actually to do some study where you can explore in depth in the subtleties of each of these steps, because we just really touched on, you know, some of the highlights. And then to really under, undertake the challenge of putting them into practice and then learn it from your exploration of them. So that's when this teaching becomes alive. At one point, someone asked the Buddha how long the teachings were going to last. And he said, as long as people are practicing the Eightfold Path. You know, as long as people are practicing this path, there will be enlightened beings in the world. So that's a great inspiration. You know, he laid out the path. And if we understand it and we keep walking, liberation is inevitable. You know, because we know the right direction, we keep on walking on the path, and it just takes us, you know, to to the goal of freedom. Just to say that book Joseph referenced there, Mindfulness is great, and I highly recommend it. And for people who are listening to this on the podcast, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the great translator of the original 
utterances of the Buddha has been on this show a couple times. We'll put some links in the show notes. Joseph, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, no, this was great. And, and again, to uh, just reiterate encouragement to support New York Insight because New York, like every place else, needs a vibrant Dharma center, <laughs> you know, as a focal point for really keeping the teachings alive. So I'm very grateful for its presence, and I hope you all can support it in whatever way you can. I echo that. And many of my most important early experiences with the Dharma happened at NYI. So thank you to everybody at New York Insight. Thanks again to Joseph. You're the best. I also want to say thank you to everybody who listens to this show. You too are the best. We really appreciate you listening. If you've got a moment, give us a rating or a review. That actually helps us quite a bit. And lastly, I really want to thank everybody who works so hard to make this show a reality. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And Nick Thorburn of the band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Friday for a guided meditation. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.